Good morning. Um, the Bible reading today is from Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> sorry, verses 19 to 24, and that is page 971 in your church Bibles. I did get an email this week on how to do the church Bible reading. <laughs> Some helpful hints. First one was don't waffle. I find that quite hard. Second one was read out the church Bible. Tell everyone the page. Two out of three, not bad. Right, chapter six. Treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen. Thanks, Libby. We're all very grateful for two out of three. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Uh, so, first of all, uh, I met somebody for the first time this morning. Neve Edwards up there. Baby of Laura and Steve. Neve, I'll be asking you questions afterwards on what I say, and I hope that you concentrate all the way through. No, seriously, our warmest congratulations to you both. That's just wonderful. And uh, uh, secondly, uh, great to welcome people who are doing Alpha or, or Alpha Plus at the moment. If you're not used to church, um, this can be a bit strange, so uh, we really want to welcome to you. And if you are considering following Jesus, make sure you have a conversation with Neil. Where's Neil sitting now? He was doing our reading earlier, uh, our prayer earlier. So uh, Neil was studying English. He was doing a PhD. Was it at Oxford or Cambridge? Oxford. O Pembroke College, Oxford. Uh, doing a PhD in English literature and thought, I better read the Bible if I'm going to study English literature. And became a Christian without meeting any other Christians just by reading the Bible. He's got an amazing story. Do, do chat with him. You'd love to chat with people about that, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, so if, you if not, too late. I'm sorry about that. But anyway. Uh, but just a wonderful story, so um, uh, maybe you'd like to chat with him afterwards. And uh, let me also add my personal invitation to join us for prayer uh, tonight. That's going to be an important occasion, an important rhythm uh, in the calendar of the church over this uh, coming year. Do join us. That would be wonderful. Okay, so let me introduce you to a new teaching series. It's called Generous. I want to speak about something this morning that most of you don't want to think about, let alone hear me talk about. 
I want to speak about how we spend our money. And what's worse, at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you to consider giving away more money than you currently do. And what's more, in the next few minutes, I hope to help us all see why not only that is so important that we do that, but also that you'd actually be grateful for the opportunity and that I'm doing you all a massive favor this morning. (laughs) Well, I like a challenge. This morning we start a three-week teaching series on financial giving called Generous. And there is always a certain amount of static and tension in the air as soon as we even mention money in the church. And uh, there are some good reasons for that. Number one, money is a terribly painful issue for many of us. Just making ends meet is a cloud that hangs over our lives. The burden of debt, benefit cuts, unemployment, the threat of redundancy, zero-hour contracts, the lack of money for some is a horrible shadow that hangs over our lives. There have been times in our life where I would have heard this message this morning with an increasingly sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. I didn't earn enough money at one point in our lives to raise a family with three children. I know what it's like to go to a cash point and not be able to get the money you asked out from it. I remember, and it still brings a lump to my throat, my, my son and, uh, son-in-law and daughter are here this morning, and I still remember having to sit down with Naomi about 15 years ago and saying, Nibs, I am so sorry, but we cannot afford for you to have music lessons, to have piano lessons. And it killed me as a dad. And I thought we'd struggled until we met Janne, my son-in-law, who grew up in Calcutta on $200 a year as a family. We think we had issues. So it brings real pain for some people just as soon as we mention this subject. And in a church this size, the other issue that's going on here this morning is that we are are a church of economic inequality. We would be kidding ourselves if there wasn't a big gap between the rich and poor in this congregation. That's the wonder of church, that we're all one in Christ, and one of the boundaries that Jesus transcends is our income bracket. But we would be foolish to assume that there is not both jealousy and guilt happening amongst this congregation as soon as anyone like me starts to talk about money. The third reason that there's static and tension in the air when someone like me preaches on a subject like this is that from the moment we are born, we're conditioned to play Monopoly for real. That we're conditioned to acquire stuff. We're taught to believe that happiness is just a little bit more. So the Christian message of giving runs counter to basically everything that our culture has tried to uh, uh, educate us in. And fourthly, there's another really important dynamic. I'm speaking about giving money in church, which we all know needs your money to run and keep everything going. We don't get any government subsidy. We finance ourselves or we die as Upton Vale Baptist Church. 
So that creates an interesting dynamic where I'm trying to take us back to the teaching of Jesus this morning, whereas you're all sitting there thinking, yeah, but we pay your salary. There's vested interest here. So there's static and there's tension in the air. But I hope by the end of the the time of uh, looking at this passage this morning, we will see uh, that actually we'll be grateful that we have done so. There is good news, however, and that is that if you're here uh, from uh, Alpha, you're here exploring Christian faith, then let me say immediately, you are completely off the hook this morning. Because uh, the teaching that Jesus gives on giving is for people who've decided to follow him. So you can just sit back and relax. But it will also give you an insight into, if you were to follow Jesus, some of the cost that's engaged in that decision. And for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus with all of our lives, including our money, there are a whole host of further complications, aren't there? We know that the Bible has a great deal to say about money and that Jesus said you cannot serve two masters, that it's either him or money. But what does that look like in practice? When is it right to move house and when isn't it? When is it right to change cars and when isn't it? How do we express love to our kids without spoiling them? How much money should we save and how much should we pay for various insurance? How much should we give away and who should we give it to? Our TVs and our inboxes are just full of requests for legitimate causes. How are we supposed to manage all that? Do we pay for a new carpet or do we give our money to the coronavirus? And for those of us who know our Bibles, that we know that we should be suspicious of how we feel. We know that we should be suspicious of this greed-driven world that is always saying that we they need their product. We know that Jesus said that wealth was deceiving and that we know we don't want to be deceived. But how on earth do we handle money rightly in this complicated world? Do we buy something cheap that doesn't last long or do we buy something that's expensive that does? Do we downsize to release money or upgrade to invest for the future? What does faithful stewardship look like? It's a challenge, isn't it? Hello, is anybody there? It's a bit dark on the rises this morning. It's a bit like being at the theatre, really. Uh, See a few hands waving. Great. In the Bible, we find some amazing ancient wisdom to help us navigate through the financial complexities of living today. And in the words of Jesus, we find some profoundly challenging words that uh, turn upside down how we should use our money. Our reading from Matthew 6 is from what's called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus taught a revolutionary way of viewing our lives in his new kingdom. And in the passage we heard read earlier, he gave two foundational and overarching new principles about money. He said this, For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And what I want to do very simply this morning is just try and understand what those two phrases actually mean. Jesus talks about two types of treasures. He talks about one type that will not last and one type that will last forever. Treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. 
And Jesus said it's madness to focus on our whole lives on acquiring what we cannot keep. And much better to focus on what we can treasure in heaven, not on earth. And then he says that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And then he talks about how our eyes are the lamp of the body. He seems to be saying that what we focus on can either lighten up our lives or darken them. And uh, then he concludes, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So his teaching is very binary. It's very black and white. It's very either or. He seems to pitch money and wealth as a rival God and as a rival uh, hope to faith in him. How are we to understand Jesus' teaching and, what do we, uh, and, and how do we apply it to our lives? That's what I'm going to try and look at this morning. So let's just step back a moment. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What does that mean? Well, the first chapter of the book of the Bible says that we are made in the image of a God who is love. And that means we are, are made to love as human beings. It's not just that we have the capacity to love, we have a compulsion to love because we're made in the image of God. People have to love something. Now, the most natural thing in the world is that what we love the most, we go after. We naturally prioritize it in life. That's the way we're made. We're designed to pursue what we love. Our life is a whole journey going after what we love. Now, originally, when we were made in God's image to love God, know God, and walk with him, that worked beautifully. That made for a marvelous world because our whole life was orientated towards loving God and becoming like him and knowing him and walking with him. But when sin entered the world, which the first book in the Bible tells the story of, how it all went terribly wrong, where sin is like a virus corrupting all your files. It's like rust destroying your car. The thing is, sin didn't stop us loving. What it did is it disorders our love, it distracts our love, it distorts our love, and then destroys any kind of meaningful sense of selfless, self-giving love. That's what sin does. It disorders, it disorientates, and it distracts. But we are still people who pursue what we love. It's important to understand that when a love for God gets replaced with a love for something else, we're still on a quest and we're still on a journey. It's just that it's now going on in a very different direction. As Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Wherever your, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, this is really your God your functioning state saviour. Because we're, all of our lives are focused towards what we love. If it's not God, we're still going in that direction. It's important to understand that when, we, when a love for God gets replaced with a love for something else, we're all still on that journey. We're made that way. So what we love can set us on a trajectory of forming us as God wanted us to be formed, or it can be disforming us and destroying what God intends. That's what lay behind this uh, teaching of Jesus. 
You see, all of this goes on not at a conscious level at the front of our minds, but in our subconscious. And the Bible seems to talk about the subconscious as, a, as the place of the heart. Our deepest subconscious desires, not the organ of the heart, I hasten to add, but as a metaphor as a, for the command and control center of our lives. It's where our deepest motivations and desires are situated. And the thing is, it's going on in the background, shaping the way we live, and we don't even realize it. It's incredibly influential because it's hugely overlooked. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Because all of us are going in a direction after what we treasure, what we love. And Jesus is saying, you cannot love money and God at the same time. They are different directions. They are different paths. They are different shaping orientations for your life. And the huge irony of all this, the huge irony is that actually the thing that becomes most controlling and most determining in our lives, we're not even really fully conscious of. It just happens in a kind of, uh, at a subconscious level. This is how the advertising industry works. It doesn't try and convince us intellectually, it just entices and allures us. They, uh, all they need to do is make their product appear attractive. It's part dream, part vision, part fantasy, part mirage, but it becomes an image of the future that our heart latches onto, and we go in that direction. So let's sum up where we've got to so far. Human beings are made to love. What we love the most, we worship. What we worship shapes the destiny of our, destiny of our lives. And so, uh, ultimately, we become what we worship. We are what we love. And most of the time, we don't even notice. How ironic is that? We are ultimately defined not by what we know or what we achieve, but by what our heart loves. Now, this is what his, uh, Jesus wanted his followers to be aware of. He wanted to get what subconsciously happens in our heart into the conscious mind. He wanted to say, you cannot have two masters. You cannot have money and God. They take you in different directions. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus was doing was taking this kind of primal instinct that we have to acquire stuff to be comfortable and saying, actually, let's bring that into the conscious part of our brains and say, that doesn't work. So this morning, as we start this uh, 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 series about generosity, I want to do what Jesus did. I want to take what we subconsciously feel and bring it into the forefront of our conscious minds. I want to put a window into the subterranean world of our hearts. I want us to do some money cardiology. What's going on there in our instincts? And uh, can I just warn you that the next three points are going to make us all, including your speaker, very uncomfortable. And if you don't like it, blame Jesus. Okay? So, as we lift the lid 
on this subconscious motivation of our hearts that Jesus was trying to get into the consciousness of our minds, the first thing that's going on there is this. The proportion of money we give away reveals how much we really love God. Oh, I wish that wasn't true. But it is. The picture here is uh, our bank statement, plus, with the amounts covered over strategically, my journal. This is where I write my prayers, record my life in God. The question is, which one, the bank statement or my journal, more accurately reflects my love for God? The journal ref might reflect my intention, but my bank statement, the reality. Please notice the important word here, proportion. It's not the amount. That's why Jesus told the story of the widow's mite. If someone earns a million and someone else earns a hundred and they both put a tenner in the offering, who's given more money? It's about proportion. In the real world of pension, benefits, debt, being married to non-Christians, etc., etc., proportion is a very important principle. But is it really true? Is it really true that the proportion of money we give away reveals how much we really love God? Well, in John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And ever since then, love has been measured by giving, and the quality of the love has been measured by the quality of the gift. In the Bible, giving is always to God. When we give to a church or a charity or a person, they are simply the intermediary. Our giving is to God. It's an act of worship for a Christian. We just have to nail the nonsense, which says you can earn 20,000 pounds a year, but if you give 20 pounds a month, that we can't sing with integrity. He demands my soul, my life, my all. The proportion of what we give reveals how much we really love God. If our level of giving does not require some measure of sacrifice on our part, if it doesn't actually cost us something, then what kind of worship is that? How can it ever be described as worship? As Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Ouch. The second window on the subconscious heart when it comes to money is who we give our money to tells us what we really believe about God. If you look at the charities and the causes someone gives their money to, it's a window on that person's belief system and, the, and where, they, where they put their hope for the future of the world. So if you give all your money to the Cat Protection League, it says something about your priorities and that you need help. And anyway... We could take that a bit further. Philanthropists give incredibly generously to education. Incidentally, there is a way of giving which actually boosts your uh, public esteem. You're known to be a benefactor. Jesus was never, ever into that. It was always giving anonymously, discreetly. 
But philanthropists uh, can give, for example, huge amounts of money to education. Now, I believe that education is important, but I wouldn't give my money to education. Why? Well, it's just that when I look back on history, I don't see that the main problem for Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, and every other tyrant that has ever lived was a lack of education. The need of humanity goes deeper than education. Please hear me. I'm not saying that giving to education is wrong. I'm just illustrating that what we give reflects our belief system in how the world is made better. If you give all your money to secular causes, it says something about where you put your trust for the world's future. If you're a Christian who gives to charity but not to the church, something then has gone seriously wrong in your journey of faith. The local church, the Bible says, is the body of Christ, the only hope for the world. Why wouldn't we give to that if we're followers of Jesus? And the third principle, this window on our subconscious heart, is that how we arrange to give our money reveals how integrated our faith has become with the rest of our life. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, taught a very important principle, both to the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth. And you can read it in 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul says, Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That's the proportionality thing again. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. It will all be there, ready. That first principle. The big principle of um, giving is to do it first. Seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be added unto you. Organize our giving as the foundational principle on which all of our budgeting is based. It's just like setting aside time for God. If you do everything else, you'll never find time. You have to make time. We have to make giving work. It's a foundational priority because you'll never find it spare. Organizing our giving is integrating our faith at a foundational level. So let's just recap on those three points. Jesus wants to make the subconscious focus of our hearts the conscious attention of our minds. What's going on in our hearts? Number one, the proportion of money we give away reveals how much we really love God. How we, who we give our money to tells us what we really believe about God. And the way we arrange to give our money reveals how integrated our faith has become with the rest of our life. Oh, man. How many of you, like me, feel convicted by my... Pre- <laughs> this is tough stuff. But actually, this is the subconscious reality of our lives. Just turn to the person next to you this morning and say, I'm so glad I came this morning. (laughs) But the point is, the point is in all this, this God, this Jesus, he loves us. He wants what's best for us. He's not some cosmic killjoy out to make us skint. He wants us to live free. And he says you can't serve two masters. Your life will follow a trajectory of what your heart treasures. And it can't be money and me. It's either or. Sometimes it needs the example of those who are the poorest in the world to inspire us again about how we might give. 
Look at this three-minute video from India. It's astonishing. I don't know about you, but I find that really challenging and inspiring. But let's just have a health check at the moment, because um, I have been in churches where actually a lot of manipulation and uh, a lot of emotional pressure is put on people to give. And uh, the Bible has a great antidote for that, and it's this. God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because God is generous, and when we become like him, we are fully alive. Why does God like a generous giver? Because we have learned that it's better to give than receive. Because it shows we've understood grace. Freely we've received, freely give. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because we've understood true happiness is found in prioritizing God's happiness. What we do with our money is a direct reflection of whether we have learned to trust God with our happiness. That's why God loves a generous giver. He celebrates because we've got it. We've got grace and we trust him for life. It's about our thankfulness and our joy in living a life in Jesus. Why does Jesus love a cheerful giver? Because it means that we've understood that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. It means that we've got that. So here's the out. If you're not a cheerful giver, please, please ignore everything else I'm about to say. Because <laughs> it's much, much more important that you get connected with Jesus and know his grace. Uh, you know, I don't want anybody going home from here saying, oh, it was the church banging on about money again. It's just a reflection of the pain in our hearts, actually. Actually, some of the most worshipful thing that some of us can do this morning is if you're in a position where I was uh, 15 years ago or so, where I'd have felt sick listening to a sermon like this, all, all I can plead with you to say is that God loves you. He's for you. We're for you. Please talk to someone about that so that we can help you with your financial struggles so that you can live free. We are, please don't go away from here feeling just more guilty than you already do. That is not the life of Jesus. But for others of us, we recognize that as we think about those truths of the proportion of what we give actually reflects how much we love God. We need to do something about it. So there's one simple application today. We all need to review how much money we give away and to whom. We need to look at our bank balance and ask, does this reflect my gratitude for Jesus? His priority in my life, what I believe. As a church this year, our goal is to see our monthly income match our monthly expenditure. It's a huge target. It's 50,000 pounds over the course of the year. But I believe that as we all prayerfully review our giving, God's work done in God's ways will not lack his resources. I passionately believe that. And it might be that we can only do the handful of rice principle. We might look at our standing order and we might only be able to increase it by a few pounds a month. But the principle is that as we all do that, the kingdom of multiplication comes into effect.
So we've made it easy for us to review our giving. If you go on the Upton Vale website and you click on to the header at the top of this new series, Generous, it will take you to a giving page on our website. And on that giving page there, you've got all the instructions you can download, a standing order form. You can see our bank details there. It clearly explains how we can give. And what we need to do is that handful of rice principle. Not just one or two of us, not a dozen of us, but all of us who see Upton Vale as our church to prayerfully review that. As I said, for some of us, that might mean our step of discipleship is to decrease our giving and talk to somebody about our financial challenges. That's great. But as we all do this together, then God will multiply our giving. Generous. This hasn't been the easiest sermon to preach, and it's certainly not the easiest sermon to hear. But where we have to finish with is the reminding ourselves that Jesus loves us. He wants us to live free. He wants to bring to the consciousness of our minds the subconscious beliefs that lurk in our hearts and he wants to make Jesus Christ Lord of it all. Let's join him in that journey and learn to be generous. Let's pray. Our prayer, Jesus, this morning is that we would worship you with our money and that our money would be a reflection of our whole lives. That in the same way we have freely received from you, we would freely give and we would live in that inheritance of generosity we would live in this kingdom where our hearts are going after the treasure that will not fade or perish, the treasure of knowing Jesus. Lord, you know this is a difficult subject for many of us. Would you come by your spirit and soften our hearts that we might trust you with our happiness and live free? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.